Good morning, church. I say, who loves? You say, he loves. Who loves? He loves. Who loves? He loves. I say all the, y'all say time, all the, all the, a. Okay, okay. And that's as much Valentine's as you're getting out of me today. I wore red, and we're going to talk about church deacons. I don't know what gets more Valentine's than that. Um, it's good to have you. My name is Justin, one of the elders here at Peninsula Grace. And, um, you know, I was thinking about this week, uh, we're going to be preaching, we're continuing our series through First Timothy. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along. 2009, um, which is weird, that's 12 years ago, um, I worked at a company that hired you out to various events as a food server. So I got dressed up in a penguin suit and, and felt a lot like, like I was in a Jane Austen novel or something like that. I was uh, Alfred, uh, Batman's butler. Uh, here's some proof. There it is right there. That's my, uh, my, best, my best butler face. Um, and, and it made me want to say things like, very good, sir. Would that be all, madam? things along those lines. Uh, there were some fun parts of the job. Uh, I, was, I served at a, a national hairdresser's convention. Uh, many people who were not observing that First Timothy 2 hairdo memo that we were talking about a couple weeks ago, uh, and uh, one of the, they, they were actually, there were these, they, a lot of them were stealing, we had, we'd served chicken, and they were stealing extra chicken and putting it in their purses to take it at home. And so the lady in the back told us, don't give out extra napkins, because they're taking, using those to hide chicken and steal from us. So we had, it was, it was the, one of the weirdest experiences of my life. But there were also aspects of the job um, that were hard and not fun, uh, beyond being chicken police. Uh, because of my position as a server, because of my outfit, uh, I felt that oftentimes people sort of viewed me as kind of subhuman. That they would, um, some were kind, but some didn't even really look at me, but they kind of looked beyond me. And that, that when they were done, they just kind of throw a napkin in my face. Very good, sir. Um, they would make a mess and then just demand that I would clean it up for them. But I was just seen as the hired help, not really as a person, which, which made me um, think of many who have dealt with that kind of treatment uh, for the majority of their lives, or maybe even for some for generations. In the New Testament, there were, some, there were several concepts of serving other people. The Greeks had a concept of serving that basically they felt like the highest good um, was the development of the self, which sounds like a pretty modern idea, doesn't it? Um, they, they saw, um, the other, so because of that, they saw serving other people as beneath them. This, this, it was menial to them. In other words, that serving someone else was beneath me, um, that, that it's not my job. My job is to be served right? Uh, to rule. The American dream, the story is rags to riches. Uh, the hope would be that I'll have riches and someone in rags will serve me. I want to be on that cruise ship back when we were allowed to be on cruise ships um, and not the one handing out the virgin daiquiri, but the one receiving it. So that's the, the Greek concept of serving, the Jewish concept of serving. Now, now, they saw serving as good, especially when directed toward God or toward the, toward the poor. That was part of the law. That was part of what they were called to be. However, oftentimes the Jewish mindset was they saw serving as meritorious. In other words, what it would earn them. They would receive praise or a reward from God and other people. I remember on a high school mission trip I was on, we kind of got into this mindset of trying to outserve one another, but not in a healthy way, like Paul says about un outdoing honor toward one another. We would kind of make it a, 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 a competition, which is how I roll, right? Well, I witnessed to eight people today. Oh, yeah, I witnessed to nine. Well, I'm scrubbing the floor over here. Well, I'm scrubbing it even harder, right? We're trying to outdo each other, trying to be the better server. We're trying to earn brownie points with God, trying to get other people um, to, to accept us, love us, validate us. 
And oftentimes, the Jewish people, they would only serve those who felt like they deserved it. And they would create these categories of people that they would serve and people that they wouldn't serve. It can become just another place of proud self-exaltation. In, in, in Matthew 6, Jesus talks about the Pharisees who would do it just to be seen. They'd blow these trumpets and, I'm serving, right? Look over here, please validate me, right? All sorts of things that they need counseling for. Um, Jesus' concept of serving was different than either one of these ways. That Jesus, uh, he says that the kingdom of this sinful world is one of self-preservation, or the highest good is receiving, right? Of, of being seen as important, watching out for number one. And Jesus came to offer another way, another kind of kingdom. Remember in, in Mark 10, James and John are arguing over who's going to be sitting at Jesus' right hand forever, who's going to be the most powerful. And Jesus' response to that, he says in, in John, or excuse me, Mark chapter 10, Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. Do, 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 do. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. That's the Greek word diakonos. And whoever wants to be the first among you must be the slave of everyone else. And lest we think that Jesus would call us to something that he would not lead first in by example. He says in verse 45, for even the Son of Man came, God himself in flesh, not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. That we see in Jesus's kingdom, the highest good is not being served, but it's serving. It's not taking, but it's giving. A giving of oneself to God and to other people, he says, is the highest joy. In in Acts 20, he's quoted to say, it is more blessed to give than to receive. That Jesus' way says that in giving, in serving, there is more joy. That that the attitude of, of Christ is, it's not even about me. It's about my God and about the best for other people. So I ask you this morning, what, what do you believe about this? And we know the right answer on the screen, right? But the question is, in the way that we live, do we believe that serving is beneath us or maybe serving certain people or in certain ways, categories? Or maybe do we serve just to order, to, in order to get special brownie points with God or to be seen by other people, be seen by others? Or is our heart a servant's heart of joy like Jesus's? And I know if, if you're like me, man, we've got a long road of growth ahead in this one. Now this morning, we're going to be learning about serving. Paul's continuing his discussion on church leadership in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Last week, we saw the first seven verses he talked about elders, or the word is overseers, shepherds, pastors. This week, he's going he's to transition to talking about deacons, another role in the church. We're going to look at who deacons are, um, how they are supposed to live, and what they gain. So we'll start with who they are. I've got blanks in your bulletins. If you want to follow along, we're going to be looking at 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 through 13. The first part of this, a little bit of background uh, before we dive into the text. He says, verse 8, deacons likewise. So elders look like this, deacons likewise, they're going to look like this. Now, deacon literally is the Greek word for servant. That's all that that word means. When Jesus just said he will become a servant of all, that's the same word, the same Greek word, diakonos. Here it's translated deacon. So we know that all of Jesus' followers are called to be servants, right? All of them are called to serve him and others. But what we see in our New Testament is that there are specific roles and specific gifts for people in the body. Romans 12 says, in his grace, God has given different gifts for doing certain things well. 
If your gift is serving others, serve them well. If you are a teacher, teach well. Now, he's not saying, because you might just say, well, I just, I don't have the gift of being a servant, right? I have the gift of being served. That's my gift, right? No, no, we're all called to serve other people. But some of us have specific gifts in specific capacities. Um, in the New Testament, we see two official roles in the local church, uh, elder and deacon. Philippians 1, when Paul is greeting the church at Philippi, he says to all the saints who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. He uses this term to talk about these two roles. So where did this role of deacon come from? Well, we don't know exactly. Uh, the New Testament is not uh, super clear on it, but what we think, it, one of the places it may have stemmed from, in Acts chapter 6, um, the, er, the church is still in very infant stage. Jesus has just left, and there's arguments arrive, arising uh, with the original disciples here, which is good to know that all, all churches have issues, not just us. And the widows were receiving daily meals, the widows who were poor. But the Greek-speaking Christian Jews were complaining that there was prejudice being shown against the them and favor toward the Hebrew-speaking Christian Jews. They were, the Greek-speaking ones were getting overlooked, okay? And, and the disciples said, look, we, we have a lot on our plates, figuratively, that we are praying, that we are teaching the Bible, teaching God's word to all these baby Christians. And so we don't have time to play daily lunch police with, with all these people. So they choose, it says in Acts 6, from among them seven men to serve tables, to, to help sort through this this uh, discussion, this argument, and to serve the food. Now, this word to serve tables is the same word in our text today, diakonos, to serve. Now, in this capacity, he's just saying they're going to serve tables. This isn't being used as an official role, an official title, but what we see here is very possibly the germ form, kind of the embryonic stage of what this role would be. Now, the Bible never gives us just a list of here's all the things that a deacon does. So we can't be dogmatic about this, and we see different churches over history in, uh, playing this out in different ways. But what we do see, and I think N.T. Wright summarized it well, as we look at the context of the New Testament and where we see these servants serving and how, he says these deacons are appointed to organize and administer the practical details of daily living within the renewed people of God. To organize and administer the practical details of daily living within the renewed people of God. So we see here they're serving food to, to the widows. We see New Testament examples of deacons visiting people in homes, of caring and distributing uh, money and food to the poor and, and the sick. In 1 Timothy, the, the main difference we see between an elder and a deacon qualification is that for elders, it says they need to be able to teach. It doesn't say that for the deacon. Now, this doesn't mean that they can't or they don't teach. We said last week, we're all disciples. We're all, we need to know our faith and be able to, to, to be able to teach the faith to other people. In fact, one of the servants in Acts chapter 6 is Stephen. In the very next chapter, he's getting stoned. And in the middle of this, he's preaching one of the greatest sermons that we have in our Bibles. The man knows how to teach the word of God. But the point is, this role was not one of authoritative teaching in the church. Now, you might ask, well, wait a minute, Justin. Why, why aren't we just all supposed to be serving? Like, why would, we, why would there even be official roles to begin with? Why don't, aren't we just all supposed to serve? Well, we know that our God is a God of order. He's a God of order who has given us different gifts and different roles to function according to that order. And yes, everybody should be serving, but there are those in particular who are qualified, committed, consistent, and accountable. What we're talking about here is a role in the church where someone says, I'm in with this family. And I'm going to day after day, week after week, be devoted to serving the people in our church in these capacities. So 
On the back wall, uh, there's a pictures of our elders and our deacons, and this is just the, this to be able to be familiar with who they are. I know they would not want me to put in their, in their uh, pictures on the screen, but I've got the clicker. And so um, these are some of the, the men and women who serve in our uh, church as deacons. Uh, some serve in areas like facilities. Uh, Robert, I, I th- he's been serving here, I think, forever. I think he was actually one of the original Acts 6 deacons, which is amazing that he's still kind of around today. Uh, but we know that there are, uh, he helps with fixing the lights and the doors and put in the new waterless urinals, which he tells me are water. They might just be broken. I don't know. I don't know. No, I'm just kidding. Um, pretty amazing. Uh, but we serve, some serve our body. Some of the women here serve through uh, helping organize meals for those in our church who have just had a baby or are sick. Um, we, Maggie helps lead the prayer chain so we can be praying for our people uh, on a consistent basis. We also have what we call ministry teams. This word ministry just means to serve. So people in our body who are serving other people. We have those who are serving this morning with worship and in the back with words and sound. We have our missions team that helps organize and distribute our funds to the missionaries that we support and leading a trip like we're going to be taking this year to Nicaragua. We have those who are serving in our adult, youth, and children ministries and teaching the word of God, loving our people, handing out goldfish. Our adults love that part of it especially. Um, What we see is where the elder is an administrator, a leader in the sense of oversight and spiritual direction for the church, that the deacon helps the elder in the church ministries, just like in Acts 6, so that we can be devoted to prayer and ministry of the word. They're taking care of some of these practical daily details. Now, this doesn't mean that deacons are just assistant elders. Like, I'm like, Robert, fetch my coffee. Right? He's like, yeah, over my dead body. Uh, I throw a napkin in his face. Oh, very good, sir. No, we're not. And this is also not just a stepladder up to, uh, to elder right? Like, Doug's not, I'm coming for you, Frankino, right? That pulpit's mine, right? That's just not, these are different, just like a husband and wife, which Doug and I are not, to be clear. Um, we have different roles and not different value, right? Which is why what we're going to see next is that these qualifications, these character traits are, are almost identical between the deacon and the elder. So this is a little bit of who they are, but how do they live? What, is this, what does this look like? Well, in 1 Timothy, we're given a list of qualifications for the deacon, and very similar to the elder. What we see is Paul is not talking about a, funct- a list of functions of what they're called to do, but more about who that person is called to be, the one who's filling that role. And both of them, he's looking for a mature Christian whose behavior is above reproach. Above reproach. So this is, again, not about competence as much as it is about character. And, and similarly, like last week with the elders, this is not a list that's exhaustive. He's not telling us everything we need to know about what they do and who they are. But we saw a church that was a mess, and so he is offering some corrections to the way that they're behaving at the time. But these are authoritative because they're ultimately God's word through the Apostle Paul, and therefore they are just as applicable to us today. So what we look at, let's look at verse 8. It says, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. So just like with the elders, he says, we're looking for those who are in control of their speech, in control of of their their bodies and what goes into their bodies, alcohol, food, and and money. And, and, And what we see when we're serving... Serving is not primarily about light bulbs or waterless urinals or, or the budget. That serving is primarily about people. It's primarily about relationships. And what he's saying here is if, if we can't control our own bodies, how can we care for somebody else? The principle is how we control ourselves determines how we care for others. How we control ourselves determines how we care for others. 
verse 9. Next, he says that they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Now, what does that mean, Uh, putting those two ideas together? Uh, Paul says that the deacon must hold the mystery. We'll talk about that more next week, the the secret that's been revealed about our faith, and that's, that's Jesus Christ and the good news. Must hold this. That word means to possess, to wear it. Um, but he says they must do so with a clean conscience. What does it mean to, to hold this faith with a clean conscience? Well, we know that our conscience is that little voice in our head, that little Jiminy Cricket. It says, telling us what's right and what's wrong, right? And do right. That's my Jiminy Cricket voice. He, he's constantly calling us, and there's this internal alarm that's going off. We say, this is the right thing to do, and this is the wrong thing to do. And a clear conscience, a clean conscience, is when we listen to the voice that says what we're supposed to be doing. We have, a, we have an unclear conscience, an unclean conscience, when we disobey the thing that we are being told to do. And so what I think he's saying here, I think that the principle, we know that there have been many in this church, we've been reading about it in this letter, that they have the right message, but they're serving with the wrong motive. There are those in the church who are serving selfishly to make a buck in a, in a shady way, to just try to win arguments against other people or gain some sort of status. And Paul is saying here, and our motive must match our message. The, the message that we're preaching must be congruent with the motive in which we live this thing out. Sometimes I think that we often serve, even in the church, to just validate ourselves, this feeling of self-fulfillment. I am needed. I am competent. And that we can have this attitude that says, this is my ministry, my way right? Get out of my way. And oftentimes we don't let other people into that ministry, or we're very, very selective about who we allow into that ministry. And we get annoyed with the very people that we're called to be serving, which does not line up with our message that says that our God has selflessly and joyfully freely given to us. That's the same way that we're supposed to be giving ourselves to others, not asking what can I get out of this, but what can I give? So I believe this message, but the question here is, do I live it out? Do I do do what I'm supposed to be doing? Which leads us to verse 10. He says, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. So he says there's a test that each deacon needs to to pass. And so we want some more deacons in our church. So there's actually a test underneath each of your seats um, and a number two pencil. So if we have you give you one hour and, and the test results must show blameless. So I think, I think that's 1,600. I don't know how the d- dynamic equivalent is that to you. But what, what do we see here? This means the same, when we, when we saw it with an elder, that they shouldn't be a, a recent convert, a new believer, why do they need to be tested first? How are you going to know if their behavior lines up with their belief? How are you going to know that their message lines up with their motive? There is no substitute for time. Relationship must be built for trust to be evidenced. And so it takes time to get to know that person, to get to know their heart. The test comes with living life together. Now, in our church, we're looking for people who are already serving. So we're looking for who will be deacons and elders, leaders in our church. We're not looking for someone who's hungry for some title, some glory grab, right? But they're eager. They're eager to serve joyfully. What we're looking is for somebody who's already faithfully serving. And I think Chuck Anderson is a great example of this. I mean, for the first day they came into our church, Chuck, Chuck and Danny had a smile on their faces. They're, they're, he was out there shoveling the, the walkway before we ever even said anything. He's greeting people. That's just who Chuck is. He was already evidencing that in his heart. And again, this word blameless, he says, if you prove blameless, this doesn't mean perfect. This is not scoring 100% on every aspect of, of our lives, right? Because again, no one would ever be able to be deacons. In one sense, none of us are worthy. Amen? That's why we need Jesus. 
And in the other sense, in Christ, we are all now declared right in his sight, not because we are blameless, but because Jesus was blameless for us. What we're talking about here is someone who has evidenced maturity in their faith, in their walk. How do we know? How do we know? That, how do we see that maturity? Well, the principle I see here is that our faith is proven by our actions. As you tell me what you believe, but show me what you believe. That you say you believe this is a message of joyful servanthood, of giving. We're only going to know that you really believe that by the way that you live it. Are you selflessly, joyfully serving and giving? It's the track record of the believer. In verse 11, uh, he says that their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Now, their interpretations uh, are divided on whether this is referring to either the wives of deacons or female deacons. So which one is the text talking about? Well, you might say, well, Justin, it says their wives. Duh, right? Well, in the Greek, they're actually, they don't actually use that pronoun there, uh, the possessive pronoun there. It's just the word that can be translated wives or women. So don't get sassy with me so quickly, all right? The word could mean wives likewise must be or women likewise must be. Now, in argument for this meaning the wives of deacons, it would make sense that the character of one's spouse uh, impacts the way that you serve, right? Who your family is is, is a major part of your life. And, and like, like the elder, um, they're going to talk next about being the husband of one wife and managing their own children. But that's another argument for the wives because it would be odd to say, notice the next thing, verse 12, goes right back to let deacons each be the husband of one wife. So it's kind of like we, we've, so it would be kind of weird for Paul to say, well, male deacons should be A, B, and C. Uh, female deacons should be X, Y, and Z. And then we're going to jump back to male deacons. It's a little herky-jerky in the, in the reading. But then, in argument for female deacons, he says here, likewise. And this, same, this is the same tra- tra- transition that he uses when he says, elders must be this, this, and this. And he says, likewise, deacons. And then here we'd see again, likewise, female deacons. So it would make sense, using that phrase, that he might be pivoting to another, another person. This is deacons, likewise. And then finally, there is no mention of overseers' wives, which would be a little strange that he would say, here's the character of the deacon's wife and what it should be, but not the character of the overseer's wife. So as you can see, well, this is complicated. And, and I don't believe that this passage is crystal clear on what it's teaching. And so we want to be careful about building our beliefs and how we play those out based on one kind of difficult passage. Now, at Peninsula Grace, as you saw uh, on the pictures that we show, that we do uh, believe, and we, and we have male and female serv- uh, deacons serving in these roles. So I just want to share briefly our rationale based on Scripture, which is what it always uh, ought to be. We, we believe that this passage does leave the, room, the door open for female deacons, that it's not obviously speaking against that uh, for women. And Therefore, we wouldn't want to be dogmatically against it if the passage isn't obviously dogmatically against it. We also see other places in Scripture. Uh, Romans 16 says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centria. Here is a female that he's calling a servant. That word is the exact same word, diakonos, which could be translated deacon. Now, it's possible that he's just referring to her as a servant, but in the context, it would seem kind of weird to use that kind of language if he wasn't talking about an office. We also believe that unlike elders, this is not a position of authoritative teaching. So we don't, according to our understanding of Scripture, see any biblical principles that might be violated as we would with with a female elder. 
we believe men and women are both called to serve. We know that clearly from Scripture. And we see here, the point is, regardless of who exactly he's talking about, that their faith matters, what they believe, and their character matters. How they serve matters. So we believe that who these people are supposed to be, servants of God, and their character counts. The final thing we see here is what they gain. What they gain. Who they are, how they're supposed to live, and what they gain. So uh, I'll tell you a little story here. Uh, pastor and his wife decided to have the church deacons, all the church deacons and their families, over for dinner. It was quite an undertaking, but the pastor and his wife wanted to be salt and light for the leaders of their church. When it comes time for dinner, everyone is seated, and the pastor's wife asks her little four-year-old daughter if she will say grace. The girl says, I don't know what to say. Her mom tells her, just say what I say, honey. Okay. Everyone bows their head. The little girl says, oh, dear Lord, why am I having all these people over for dinner? Amen. <laughs> Serving each other can be hard. It's not always easy. It's demanding. It's, it's energy-sucking, time-sucking, and rarely is it glorious. Like me as a ser server, there are times when we can feel subhuman when we sacrificially give to those around us. But Jesus came to show us this is the better, more joyful way. I love the scene in Lord of the Rings uh, with the Council of Elrond where they decide how they're going to save Middle-earth and Frodo is going to go to Mount Doom to destroy the ring. And then this ragtag crew comes around him and says, I'm going to come with you. We're going to walk this thing together. And I, and I love these kind of stories, these epic journeys. We see this mission that is given to this team, the team that is formed to accomplish the mission. We see an enemy that we know is coming on this journey and they embark on this journey together. And, and Paul is writing to Timothy here. And likewise, he's saying, tell the Ephesian church, they're on a mission. They're on a journey. And how they do it and how their leaders do it, it matters. We know our mission. Our mission could not be more glorious to make disciples of all nations, to seek and save the lost, that we know that we're forming a team all of those who are in Christ, that we know we too are going to be engaged in a battle. And it's not against each other, right? It's against the powers of darkness, against sin and death itself. And Paul says that there are going to be some in the church, the false teachers, who along the journey are going to act a little bit more like Gollum. That are going to be there on the trip, but they're going to be trying to seize power, the precious. They're going to be trying to submarine the mission, even lead other people astray. And eventually these people will bail on the mission, shipwreck their faith, as he says in chapter 1. What he implores the church here is through Timothy, he says, don't be a golem, be a Samwise Gamgee, Mr. Frodo. But faithfully love and serve your brothers and sisters, to be willing to carry them when they fall, to meet the needs of those around you, to shoulder one another's burdens. Paul concludes this section by saying, for the faithful Sams among you, there awaits much to be gained. Look at this last part. It says, for those who serve well as deacons, they gain 
They gain two things, a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Two things. He says, first of all, a good standing. I think in context, there is a good standing before others. Not to show how amazing we are, but the, the love of Jesus that's seen in and through us, right? His name will be lifted high, but we will also gain trust, a good standing with others that they will trust us, allow us into their lives to be able to serve them well. But I think we also see a good standing before our God. I love in, in Jesus' parable where he goes at the end of the story. He says, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful diakonos. It's the same word for servant there. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much for eternity. And then my favorite part, enter into the joy of your master. The great gain is the presence of God himself. That is our joy. Now, I don't believe Paul here is saying that serving others is what gains you a right standing with God. That is not the gospel. We know what the gospel says in Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight, not by serving well, but, but by the one faith, and he says, by faith in the one who served us well. We have peace with God. Why? Because of what we have done? No. Because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. See, when we serve with that Jewish mindset of, of how we can gain God's approval, earn his approval, that will end up being a fear-based motivation, and it will end in bitterness and resentment and death. But when we serve understanding, believing the good news that we already have God's favor, that we already are his children, that we are safe and secure because of Jesus' sacrificial giving to us, that we can be motivated by love, and it ends in joy in his presence. Second thing he says here, not just good standing, but great confidence. Great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I think what he means here is when we believe Jesus, when we take him at his word, that living a life of giving of ourselves, self-sacrifice for others, uh, be able to be there not for ourselves, but for people and those around us, we're going to gain confidence. As we experience this, as we, as we take a step of faith and start living the way that Jesus is calling us to live, we're going to see Jesus is right. That giving is, it's not easier. But it is better, and there is more joy in giving than receiving. That gives us a confidence as we walk by faith. I know almost every week, you know, we, have, you know, we all have obligations. And some of the, even the, you know, the, 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 sometimes just the fact that they are obligations can become a burden in my mind. We have community group every Thursday night, and, and there are a lot of afternoons where I'm at home now, and I'm thinking, man, I just would love to stay here and kind of do me, right? Just play games with Jill, read for a little bit, watch a, a game on TV. Right? And, the, and, and the last thing I want to do is get back out of the house or have a bunch of people over into my house, right? Make, getting it dirty, breaking stuff. Then I got to clean up the dishes after them. I got to pray for them. Like, oh, right? First world problems, I understand. But you know what I find every week when I get up and I go? Man, it is so much better. There is so much more joy in thinking about other people, praying for them, loving them, letting them break my stuff, right? It's wonderful. <laughs> So much better. I could sit at home on a couch and do nothing, but you know what? There's not more joy there. It's a lie. It's a lie. Matthew 10, and he says this, says, if you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. Jesus speaks to a great paradox here, a great irony. He says, when you give your life, when you let go of trying to make it all about you, he says, you know what you find is the most joyful life that there is. But when we're spending so much time and energy trying to preserve our life, make it all about us, our comforts, our joy, our approval from others, 
says that's actually the process of death. That's how you lose your life. And we come to find that the Greek way of, of serving is wrong. That is not beneath us. If it is not beneath our Lord's, it's not beneath us. We also find the Jewish way is wrong. This is not about what I can get out of it, the approval from other people. But Jesus, his way is the way of joy, the way of life. And just like in Ephesus, guys, we're not playing around here. This isn't just playing church. That just like it, with the journey toward, toward Mount Doom, we know that the battle is real. We know that the journey is long and hard, right? We know the stakes could not be higher. The mission could not be more important. And the question is, are we being a Gollum or a Sam? Are we taking or are we giving? Are we serving others or are we trying to be served? In the end, one of them end, ends in the tumbling into the fire of Mount Doom, and the other one ends back in the Shire in the presence of our God. So the question is, how do we serve others? What does this look like practically? And then we'll be done. Um, some of the most faithful servants that I know in our body are Al and Sue. And uh, due to their own health and, and the virus, they've been at home since September of 2019. It's a long time to be away from those that they dearly love and dearly serve. But their heart, no matter where God puts them, is how can we serve other people? Al called me a few weeks ago, and he asked if they could come to the gym in the afternoons and walk around, get, you know, it's the winter months, how can we get some exercise? And in typical Al fashion, he wasn't just thinking, how can I get some exercise? He said, we'd also like to invite some other folks, maybe that they haven't been around as many people right now, just a place, and not just to walk with us, but we'd love to pray for them at the end of it and just read scripture together, encourage them. I mean, Al and Sue could make anything into a ministry. They could stumble on, onto a drug deal and make it a Bible study. Right, that's just, ooh, just put your syringe down and pray with me, right? Their heart is just serve, serve, serve. So the question is, who, who do I serve? Well, it's whoever God's putting in my path at the, at the moment, right? And, and how do we serve? Well, we take our eyes off ourselves and we put them on their needs. One of the best ways we can love people is start, start, starts by listening to them. Where, where is their heart? Where are they at? What are their needs? And then we, we pray for them. We, we speak truth to them. We encourage them. And, and this means a giving of ourselves. It means giving of our time, giving of our emotion, giving of our, our physical resources. Be, whatever their need is. We, if they need help fixing their heater that broke down in the middle of February, we can help them with that. You know, watch their kids for a few minutes so they can go catch a breath. What are the needs and how can we meet them? So who's that one person this week the Lord's putting in your mind to serve? Who's the person that comes to mind? And how are you going to do it? I even invite you on the way home in the car. Talk, what's the plan that we're going to come up? And then by faith, act on that plan. Let's become a people who serve those around us as Jesus has served us. Now, this path is not easy. When Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me, the insinuation was dying to self. Of a sacrifice, putting ourselves on the altar day after day, saying this is all about you, and this is all about others. And the reality is, we like, to, we like to have this fairy tale story that every time we serve someone, they are just overflowing with gratitude. Thank you so much. But we know it often happens. It's not even noticed. Or we're still mistreated. Or we'll, we're still seen as subhuman. We are not doing it for the glory from men. And Jesus was our great example. In Hebrews 11, when he says, here's the hall of people who have trusted me, who have done hard things, who have lived their lives for other people. And what I've called them into he says, this is what I've called you to as well. And he says in Hebrews 12, he says, how do we do this? How do we live this life of faith, of self-sacrifice, of, of dying to our, ourselves? He says, we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. 
Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Jesus knew. He knew he was going to give his very life. And he wasn't going to receive many thanks at the cross. In fact, it was the very people he was dying for and actively forgiving who were cursing him, spitting on him, and nailing him to that cross. But he did it. Why? Because he knew the joy that was on the other side. And now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Jesus has heard the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. And he's in the joy of his master. And now you and I are seated with Christ in the heavenlies and we follow him by faith, doing it his way. And this call is to stay faithful, to be like Sam, to, to, to gain confidence that Jesus' way of self-sacrifice is the only path to true joy, to true life with our God, our master. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much that Jesus, Jesus blazed the trail. The suffering servant came not to be served, but to serve. He left his glory in heaven and chose an infinitely harder path to become like one of us, to roll around the dirt and the mud and the sin and the mire with the rest of us, than to give his life so that we may know the joy of our God. Father, I pray that we might follow in those footsteps, that we know you have saved us not by our works, but simply by our faith in that one who did it for us, and that now with his heart in us, now that we have freely received, Father, the only reason that we can freely give is because we have all we need in Jesus. Would you teach us to trust you? Would you teach us that we have enough in Christ? Would you teach us that the oxygen mask is on us so that we're now free to offer the breath of life to other people? That we trust your way, that you're not going to call us into anything that is not our best and that you will not supply the grace to do. And so, Father, I pray for my brothers, brothers and sisters here today that maybe there's that person there that you're putting on their hearts to serve this week in that way. And if it sounds difficult... If it doesn't seem like we're going to get the thank yous that we thought, maybe that's the exact thing we're called to do. Father, may we do that believing that your way of self-sacrificing giving is much better than our way of taking and putting ourselves uh, on the pedestal. We pray these things in your son's humble, serving, glorious name. Amen.